All right, so. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. I'm, yeah, the thing I'm praying for, right? Patience. Yes. Um, so uh, this is like the last lap in a marathon. So I know we have gone strong, you know, 20 something weeks and this is it. Like we've made it. We've made it all the way through. So this is, this is going to be our last chapter on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So again, working through Sinclair Ferguson's book. Um, and again, I recommend, even, even after going through this, grab a copy of it. It is such a helpful work. So I just want to, again, commend that to you. So since this is our last chapter, and then next week we're going to get started on a study on uh, who God is, the doctrine of God, and then thinking about God's decree. So that'll be a really good study, and that'll take us through the end of the year. I'm really, really excited about that. I think, I think we're all going to benefit tremendously from it. So with that, let us recall, as we get into this week's chapter, you'll see the title is The Cosmic Spirit. The Cosmic Spirit. So if you remember the last two weeks, Pastor Des walked us through the gifts of ministry, right? And we, and we, and we thought through that together. What does that look like to be in the body? We made nuances between spiritual gifts that were associated with the apostles and that era, that time period, and then uh, uh, gifts that were not only associated with the apostles, but, but with the church in general. And, and, and we were able to think about this collectively, and it was uh, an encouragement for all of us, right, that we are to serve the local church. And in serving one another, right, we think of those one another passages, there we see our gifts really come to the forefront, right? It's not the reverse order of what we think, right? What's my spiritual gift and then I'll go serve. It's let me go serve my brother or sister in need in the various ways and in so doing, my gifts will be recognized, right? So we were able to really kind of think through some of these different things, very helpful. But now we have this to think about, that as we serve one another, we look forward to the return of Christ, right? We look forward to new creation, what we already get to experience in part today, because it's been inaugurated or started in Christ. And so as we think about that, we're going to think about this idea of resurrection and the work of the Spirit in all of its glory and all of its fullness. Because it's not only the resurrection of bodies, but it is literally the transformation of the entire cosmos, the entire universe, right? And that the spirit will affect. So we're going to look at that and it's going to be really exciting as we take this to a close. And how, how, how fitting, right? The last chapter and we focus on consummation, right? The fulfillment of all things and their final state of glory. So on your notes, we're going to look under the cosmic and eschatological spirit. Now, Sinclair Ferguson likes to use really big dictionary words. Now, what does that mean? Cosmic and eschatological spirit. So cosmic, right? Cosmos referring to the entire universe, right? Not just individual or the church, but we're thinking about the entirety of created order. And then eschatological, again, another big dictionary word, and that just means that it's pointing towards the future, right? There's this purpose. It's oriented towards uh, the last things, right? It's, it's future oriented, right? So, and we're going to think about how, how this relates to the Spirit of God. So, 
turn with me to, to the book of Joel this morning. And, um, and, and we're going to start with the New Testament use of the Old Testament. So we'll start in the Old Testament and then see how the New Testament interprets it, understands it, right, in, into, into our situation because it's a great text as we think about the coming of the Lord. So in uh, uh, Joel chapter 2, if I could have a volunteer in Joel 2, it's in the Old Testament. Uh, right, we got Daniel, Hosea, um, Joel, Amos. So right, right in the back, right after Ezekiel, right after the major prophets. If I can have a volunteer, who'd be willing to read Joel 2 verses 28 to 32? Rich? All right, go ahead. Excellent. So, I know we've talked about this text before. Let me draw your attention to a couple things. Look in verse 28. So when it says, and it shall come to pass afterward, we're going to see a slight nuance when we get to Acts chapter 2, and Peter quotes this, that he's going to say that it's not just to pass afterward, but it's going to be the last days. Now, if we, if, we, if we took the time, and again, I don't remember which lesson this was, we did take the time and we went through Joel to see how this idea of the, the, the last times, the last days, right, is carried through. And then look with me in verse, um, verse 31, right? Because in the Old Testament, it's looking forward to the coming of Yahweh, right? And it would be called the day of the Lord, right? The, the great day of the Lord, right? This future reality when, when, when Yahweh comes. And uh, so look in verse 31. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord, this coming of the Lord. So it's really important because I want you to see that there's, there's, there's a couple things associated with this. So we see the Spirit is associated with this coming, right? So we, we, when we think about the coming of the Lord, we think about the coming of Christ, right? But we also need to think about the coming of the Spirit. And, and what this is going to entail is not just judgment on the unbelievers, Right or on, on the wicked, but it is also the deliverance of the saints. Right, like 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 we see in verse in verse thirty two, and then the reality of what happens with this deliverance and judgment is nothing short of new creation, glorified creation, and that and that's what I want us to see. So turn with me to Acts two, and we're going to go back and forth uh, with with. Uh, so if you want to keep a finger in the Old Testament, that's fine. We'll go to Acts two real quick. And then, um, uh, uh, and then, and then we're going to go to Isaiah. So in Acts two, in verse sixteen, and, and then I'll just do the first part of verse seventeen. So um, in verse sixteen, Peter is speaking to the multitudes in Jerusalem and says, "But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel." Right? And he's talking about the coming of the Spirit. They're speaking in tongues, right, or, or prophesying basically in another language. And then he says in verse seventeen. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, right? And then he goes on and he quotes Joel chapter 2, what we just read. I'm not going to reread that. But I want you to see the point. 
Peter says, we are in the last days. That was 2,000 years ago, right? We've been in the last days for the last 2,000 years, right? It is the end of this present evil age. And yet, remember, see the association with the Spirit, right? The great coming day, right? And, and, and the reality is, when we, when, if, we were to, if, we, if, we, if we took the time to go through this great coming day of the Lord, we'd see that there's this idea of coming judgment and and, and, uh, and, and that this present world, right, would be consumed. There, there would be this aspect of total cataclysmic judgment on, 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 on this earth. So, again, I want, I want to keep these associations together, even though we don't have the time to look at all of them. So now go back in the Old Testament. I do want to look at a couple of these so- associations that when the Spirit comes, it is associated not only with judgment, right, the coming of the Lord and judgment, But with that judgment, there's also the deliverance of the saints. There's this idea of this salvation and redemption. And it is not only individual, but it has these ripple effects even for creation, the creation that was cursed. So look in Isaiah. Let's go to Isaiah 32, like you can see. And uh, there are there should be copies of the outline on the back um, by the coffee table. If you didn't get a coffee. I know sometimes I misplace them and they'll be like on the front table and no one wants to go forward. So, yep. <laughs> All right, Isaiah 32. Let's read uh, verses 15 through 17. Can I have a volunteer or whoever gets there? Uh, just go ahead and read it out loud. Isaiah 32, verses 15 through 17. What an awesome text. And, and this is like, I know I just said this about the day of the Lord. This is another one of those texts. I wish we could just take like three weeks through the book of Isaiah and look at all these references where it talks about creation and this new creation and all the things that are associated with it, right? Because sometimes we, 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 we so like, you know, split things out. But it's beautiful, right? So here we see the spirit, this, the spirit coming, right? We see this language about uh, deserts, right? Um, wilderness is becoming fruitful fields. Uh, a fruitful field deemed a forest, right? It, it, it's so plentiful, right? And, and th- what is this language? This language is the curse reverse, right? This is, this is the reverse of the curse. It's going all the way back to creation in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. But again, notice its association with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's work. So it's not only the Holy Spirit who is at work with the people, but then there's also this broader idea of what he's even doing with creation itself because of the coming of Christ and the reversing of the curse. Yeah, I'll, I'll just turn a couple pages over to Isaiah 44 and verse 3. Similar idea. And again, there, there's just, it, it's, it's really beautiful how Isaiah will use this language, he'll use language contemporary to his time, right, right, to describe realities that he's struggling to describe. So he's got to use language and pictures that he understands and that the people in his time would have understood, right, to understand this heightened blessing. So if, if I could have a volunteer, who would, someone read uh, Isaiah 44 in verse 3, just nice and loud for us. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And I will pour my spirit upon your offspring, 
and my blessing on your descendants. Yeah, what, what, an, what an awesome thought, right? So again, we're seeing this idea of new creation and also redemption and, and being tied together, right? This is, again, one of the ripple effects, right? That Christ not only has come for redemption, but it is truly to bring not only the people, but the place to its proper order, which is nothing short of glory, which is just unreal to think about. So, think of it this way. In the same way, right, we, 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 had, we had our lesson so many weeks ago on the doctrine of regeneration, giving life to a dead sinner, right? And, and this idea that this is, this is giving life. Well, in the same way, or in a, maybe not the same way, maybe in a similar way, think about creation, right, in a similar aspect. Right? Where creation is now being renewed and there is this life that's being given to it, right? And we're going to see it in its fullest form on that day of resurrection, which is the bringing in of the new heavens and the new earth. But this gets us into this issue of, and again, these are two bigger words protology and eschatology. Now, this is not proctology, right? This is referring to. Uh, protology is like the first things and eschatology is the last things, right? And, and there's a relationship between the two because when we think about protology, what we're thinking about is things were created with a potential, right? So when we look at creation and we look at the people of creation, they were not created in this um, completed full state. They had potential to advance to something beyond what they currently possessed. And the same is true of creation. Creation had the potential to become corruptible and under a curse. And so a couple of weeks ago, I know we did talk about this when we thought about this issue of Adam and the second Adam and glory. Right? We, we, we kind of went through a couple key texts in Romans 1, Romans 3, and Romans 5. This idea of what the second Adam, the last Adam, Jesus Christ, what he's accomplished and what has he done? He's brought in glory, glory that will be revealed in us. Right? It's something that we will participate in. And this because Christ is the second covenant head, right? With Adam being the first and he, Christ, fulfilled all that was demanded of him, right? And where Adam failed, Christ fulfilled and in so doing brought in justification and brought in eternal life. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, 42. So let's, let's go to the New Testament. So again, protology, eschatology. How are they related? Protology is, it's looking forward. There's potential, right? It's, it's not created in its final complete state. It, there's, there's the ability for advancement. And then what is eschatology? Eschatology is also looking forward to it and then seeing that realization of that completeness, right? So, uh, yeah, yeah, Arnie. Correct. 
Correct. Yes, excellent point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. was has the potential to glorify God. Yes. So Adam's state was not fully complete. Yes. Yes, yeah, yeah. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. That's helpful. Yeah, because when 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 we when we think about it, Adam was created in such a way that there was potential for him to sin and become corruptible, right? But there was also potential for him that if he would have fulfilled what God had commanded of him, right, and extended the garden to the ends of the earth, right, and reproduced with other image bearers, he would have been in what theologians called a confirmed state of righteousness, meaning he could not lose his estate. He couldn't lose what God had granted to him, right? It would be irreversible. That might be a helpful word to kind of think about it, right? But when he was in the garden, under that temptation, it was reversible. He could lose, right? And, and, that's, and, and, and we know the story, right? That's what happened, right? Because God had something even greater planned, right? He gave all of these things in order to help us understand the glory of the work of Christ and then the spirit of Christ. So, 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. And, and uh, this, is, this is just, um, you know, there's a handful, uh, uh, theologians will talk about, the, the, there's like a group or family of texts when you think about a doctrine, right? That have been understood in the history of the church. So when we think about resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 should be like written down in your Bible somewhere, right? Or just like etched somewhere, right? Even if it's in the back of your mind, right? This is, this is one of those texts. This is one that you want to really keep with because it's so, so critical. So 1 Corinthians 15, and let's look at verses 42 through 49. Uh, If I can have um, uh, someone, uh, can someone read 42 to 45, and then someone, who can do 42 to 45? Jeremy, and then someone do 46 to 49? Norm? So So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Yeah, what, an, what a really fascinating text, right? When we think about resurrection, because resurrection is put in the context of two atoms, right? A first and a last. And, and to Arnie's point earlier, when we look at verse 45, or 44 and 45, it's not talking about Adam post-fall. The resurrection is not something that was thought of after the fall. Right? But the resurrection is thought of even before the fall because the contrast right, is before, before sin, right? a natural body, right? where the first man, Adam, became a living being. Right? It goes back to Genesis 2. 
right? Genesis 3 is when we see sin, sin enter in. So, and this is, this, is, this is what we see. Because Christ, by fulfilling that covenant obligation, he has earned righteousness for us, brought in eternal life, and that eternal life will be experienced in resurrection, which is a glorified body, right? Or like he says, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. All right, so on your notes, let's go to the spirit and the last Adam. So Ferguson asked this question, how then is the work of the spirit related to the resurrection of Christ, of those who belong to Christ, and ultimately of the cosmos, right? The entire universe. So we're going to look at a couple couple texts. I might hit the gas pedal on this part in order to get us into the to the next part. So if I can have someone who would be willing to read Romans one four, Sabrina. All right, and then who will, is willing to get Romans eight eleven, Matt? All right, go ahead, Sabrina. Excellent. So see how the Spirit is associated with Jesus' resurrection. All right, and then I think, Matt, you had Romans 8. Yeah, let's go to Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Excellent. So, again, same idea where we see that it is the Spirit, right? And there's this union that... Christians or believers in Christ share with Christ. So in the same way Christ has been raised from the dead, so believers will be too. And then the question is, well, how? Well, in the same way the Spirit did it, right? So the Spirit who's at work in us now will do that work he's currently do, doing and bring it to its final form, right? To that, to that great and final aspect of, of, of it, basically in its glory, right? Now, um, uh, now, now this is interesting. Let, so Ferguson does a little like footnote, if you will, and and and, and we're gonna you know uh, tease out this footnote. So who would be willing to read Romans six four, All right, Anthony, and then uh, Philippians three twenty one? Get someone for Philippians three. Yeah, Jonathan. All right, uh, go ahead, Anthony. All right, and that phrase, the glory of the Father. Just put a little you know, bookmark there, and now let's go to Philippians 3. We're going to come back to that. So go to Philippians 3. Excellent. So see that last phrase at the end of verse 21. By the power that enables uh, him even to subject all things to himself. So we see this idea of transformation of body, and it's done through the power of him, right? A reference, reference to God. And Ferguson, in both of these texts, uh, helps to draw out and help us to think about this, that when we, that the resurrection when we look at a lot of the other parts of the new testament the resurrection will be attributed to god right or god the father we see we can we see these kind of references throughout 
But we also know, as we've done our study through the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit, in one sense, is like the executor of the will of God, right? The one who goes and executes and, and accomplishes, right? Brings to order and fruition. And so when we look at a text like Romans 6, 4, you know, and, and, and Ferguson says, there's good reasons for us to even think of when it says uh, the, the, the glory of the Father, that this might be a possible allusion to the Spirit and the Spirit's work in resurrection like we read in Romans chapter 6, right? Or in Philippians 3 where it talks about the power that enables, right? And we see in other texts, right, this power being associated with the Spirit, right? Because remember earlier, uh, some of our first lessons on the Spirit, um, Spirit, right, is not foremost like ghostly or immaterial, but Spirit is life and energy, right? And, 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 we, and we think of it in, in that personal sense, Right? And so we think, when we think of Philippians 3.21, that comes to mind, right? these correlations that are associated with the Spirit from the Old and the New Testament. So two, two other texts. Uh, can I get someone to read 1 Corinthians 15.20? I got a volunteer for 1 Corinthians 15.20. All right, Norm. And then, uh, and then can I get someone to do Colossians 3.4? I know we're bouncing all over the place. All right, Anthony. All right. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15:20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. All right, excellent. And I think Des covered this. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, right? But first fruits, right? What is that? When we talk about first fruits, what are we talking about? Don't be shy. Down payment. Down payment. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's indicative of what's to come, right? You basically pull it up, and it's showing you, hey, we got a harvest coming. Absolutely, right? Same idea with Christ. Christ's resurrection is like the down payment and the picture of what we're looking forward to, right? And we see, again, it's bringing out that aspect of union, right? And, and this, this through the Spirit. So now, <clears throat> who had Colossians 3? When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Yes. So, notice that in verse 4. When Christ appears, then you also will appear with him in what? Glory. Right? So, remember how we were talking about that earlier? Right? And resurrection, right? We talk about that as man's glorified state. Um, right? We think about uh, Romans, Romans uh, chapter 8 and verse 30. Right? Those whom he justified, what? He also glorify, right? That, that idea of glorification, right? And we see that with Christ and glorification happens in the resurrection, right? And so believers, we also will experience this glory with Christ. How? In resurrection. Because like it said in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty nine, we shall, future tense, also bear the image of the man of heaven, right? Who is Christ. So, beautiful picture there. All right, now I've got a, a lengthy quote that, uh, that I, to be honest with you, I just thought it was so good, I wanted everyone to have a copy. So, you're welcome. I was thinking about you. Uh, Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so, in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 1545, um, and then, and then we'll go ahead and read this together. I'm just going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 45, because this is really like an extended comment from Sinclair Ferguson 
on, uh, on, on verse 45, where it says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So now look with me on, on your notes, and we've got uh, three paragraphs, and we'll just go ahead and, 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 uh, and read those. Ferguson says, The complex exposition of this in 1 Corinthians 15 may be summarized as follows. Adam is the type of Christ. He is the first man, while Christ is the second man. As Adam is the first of one race, the old humanity, so Christ is the first of a new race, the new humanity. Adam is the first representative man, right? We remember this from Romans chapter 5. Christ is not merely the second, but the last Adam. Since there can be no need for a further Adam-like figure after him. That's why he's the last Adam. But then notice in paragraph 2. The origins of these two men differ, however. Adam is the man of the earth and from the dust. Christ is from heaven. Not only so, but there's a fundamental difference between what they became. In a clear allusion to Genesis 2-7, where it says, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Paul says that the first man, Adam, became a living being in 1 Corinthians 15-45. But while the first Adam received the breath of God, the last Adam is the one with the very breath which gives life to his people. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. By this statement, Paul indicates the way in which Christ, as last Adam, was fully possessed by and came into the full possession of the Spirit in his glorification. Its implication is that the resurrected and glorified Christ, the Adam of the Spirit, now creates life of a new order. Life like his own through the power of the Spirit. Eschatological life whose dominant feature is spirituality. Thus the body that is sown in the grave in death is a natural body. But in the resurrection transformation, it becomes a spiritual body. Yeah, wow. That's just like, yeah. So, again, I gave you a copy of that, so you can just, you know, take some time to think about that. Because the realities of what's in there, that is so dense, right? That is uh, um, uh, really, really, really good stuff. So, um <clears throat> So any questions so far before we get into the spiritual body? Where we've covered the cosmic and eschatological spirit and the spirit in the last Adam. Any questions or comments before we hop in? Yes. Looking forward to that. All right, excellent. Well, Let's get into now the spiritual body. So uh, it, it was one of the interesting things. Um, so when I first became a Christian, 
one of the things that I just got like super enamored with was apologetics when I when I first came to the Lord, the Lord you know some time ago, and uh, one of the things that I like you know couldn't get enough of was thinking about the resurrection of Jesus right and just like how like this is like historically true didn't happen in a vacuum right and so getting to think about some of these things and it was interesting because then I ended up reading guys who didn't know the Lord. And they're talking about resurrection, and they're like, oh, yeah, spiritual body? That just means, like, ghostly. So, you know, the, the real body of Jesus is in the grave, but he's got a spiritual body because Paul, you know, built on this tradition, you know, 500 years later, you know, just this, 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 this kind of stuff, right? And, um, and the spiritual body is really like this, like, ghostly body, and the real physical body of Jesus is still in the grave, right? And, 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 and we, we see that in, in different, different aspects in, in the liberal tradition, right? In, uh, in different, uh, a theo- again, I don't mean liberal politically, but I'm, I'm, I, when I'm saying liberal, I mean theologically liberal, right? I'm thinking of the last 300 years especially. So a long way to say that there has been confusion, and even, even as believers, right? When we think of spiritual, a spiritual body, it sounds like an oxymoron, right? Because when we think of spirit, what comes to mind is ghostly, Im- Im- immaterial, right? And we're talking about a physical body, that's spiritual. It sounds like a contradiction. It sounds like, you know, uh, two enemies that can't be friends. So with that, Ferguson lays out just some helpful ways for us to contrast and think about this. When we think about resurrection body, and then we're going to think about these implications with new creation. Because resurrection is really, when we think about it, just one aspect of new creation. Right? That, they, that they are tied together in this really beautiful way. So 1 Corinthians 15. So go back again. I told you guys. 1 Corinthians 15 is like one of those texts, and it's one of those texts, right? So we're going to be spending some time. 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at uh, in verses 42, 43, and 44. So on your notes, notice right this contrast between natural body and spiritual body, right? And, 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 and the contrast that Paul brings out. Right, that uh, the natural body is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. Uh, the natural body is sown in dishonor and raised in glory, and sown in weakness and raised in power. But then look in verse forty-seven of First Corinthians fifteen. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from what? From heaven. And I think this. And, and Ferguson picks up on this, and I found this really helpful. This association with spirit, the spirit, or spiritual, and heaven, right? We, we see this connection that Paul, Paul it's, like, it's like Paul can use them almost interchangeably. Now, again, they're not interchangeable in the fullest sense, but, but there, there's this association between the two. Well, why is that? And, and, and that's what I want us to think about. And Ferguson helps lay it out. So on your notes, you'll see imperishable, in glory, and in power. And I want to bring these things out. Ferguson says, The heavenly realm is the realm and order of the Spirit. Right? Because when we think of His heavenly body, and we think of it as a spiritual body. So we think firstly, that a resurrection body, a spiritual body, is imperishable. And how could this be tied with the Spirit? Well, this is necessarily so, for the Spirit is life, and therefore a spiritual body 
cannot not have life, right? Because the Spirit, right, is life, right? It, it cannot not be. So then it must not be able to perish, right, with this spiritual body, this irreversible state. So secondly, we think of in glory, right? That'll be raised in glory. The heavenly realm is the place of God's glory, and everything in his heavenly temple is glorious. Hence, the spiritual heavenly body is also glorious, right? We see these things tied together. But then thirdly, in power, right? That, we, that the resurrection body is raised in power. And this, again, just goes back to the Holy Spirit is not just associated with immaterial, ghost-like, right? You know, translucent see-through, right? But the Holy Spirit is predominantly associated with energy and life, right? Um, uh, 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 you know, personally dynamic movement. And therefore, a spiritual heavenly body is also powerful. So I want us to see these associations that we've learned about the Holy Spirit and how heaven is the place and order of the Spirit. And in resurrection, what the Spirit is doing is really preparing us to be in the place of the Spirit, right? Which is heaven, right? This heavenly realm, which we'll experience in its fullness in new creation. And again, it takes me a lot just to be able to say that because I feel like taking all these computer cords and like, you know, trying to put them together. So if it's hurting your head, that's okay. Because this is, this is, you know, some of the nitty gritty when we think about resurrection. But, but I want us to see it because when we understand some of these details, it really helps highlight the, not, not only the inspiration of scripture, but the beauty and glory of God and how he's designed it and how he reveals it, right? Where it, where it really shows us that this is, is glorious in, in that sense. So, so, like we said earlier, how it is this weakness and power contrast and how at the resurrection, the Spirit removes any dilution of his power, right? So it's like at the resurrection, it is the Spirit's power on full blast, so to speak, right? Because now we still experience what, right? We still experience sin and weakness. And this is the overlap of what we've said of the ages, right? Because we live in this present evil age, but we're also experiencing the age to come because of regeneration and life that the Spirit has brought in our union to Christ, right? And so we live in this already not yet. And you know what happens? When we die and we're raised with Christ, that not yet becomes the already, and the already that brings guilt and, and, and associated with weakness and death, death is completely removed, right? And so we will experience the fullness and the glory of the Spirit on that day of resurrection. Yeah, what a beautiful thing. So now, right, so we've thought, we've, so we've thought about Christ. We've thought about this connection with his people, the church. And now I want us to think about creation itself. 
So uh, go, you know, one, one book over to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> We're going to look at two texts. Romans 8, and we'll look at 2 Peter. In Romans 8, very fascinating text. And if I can have someone read verses 18 through 23, just go ahead and read it out loud. Yeah. Excellent. So if you were to have like a you know pen or a highlighter or something, Romans 8, 18 through 23 is talking about the aspects of the earth and the curse. And look at the language that's used. Like you look at verse 18, right? Or I'm sorry, in verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing, right? There's a present state. And if you will, it's like creation is looking forward. It's like, it's like creation itself knows it was not created for this. It was not created for this sinful uh, era that we currently live in. But it knows that it was created for something greater. And it knows, in, in a sense, right? We're, we're ascribing personal properties to inanimate things. But in a sense, it knows that there's something greater that it's looking forward to, right? Like it says, creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, right? God subjected it in the curse. Because on that day, it'll be set free from its bondage to corruption. And in fact, in verse 23, the whole creation has been groaning, right? Like a woman in labor. So what, so, so what is this telling us? How does this relate to the spirit, right? So this is life under the curse. Christ has reversed the curse, right? And it is the spirit who not only brings Christ, right? and his people into that state of glory. But it is also the Spirit who works so in creation to bring it into that state of glory. Now, real quick, we're not going to read 2 Peter because I want to have time for, for questions or, or input. But in 2 Peter 3, right, and, and, and I'll, I will admit, 2 Peter 3 is a more challenging text when we talk about new creation. Now, you've got the text there written down. It's a more challenging text on new creation. People have looked at this differently. But I think what's going on in 2 Peter is that there is just like the flood judgment that cleansed the earth, right? And there was a sense in which the time of Adam, there was a, a new creation, right? It was, like, it was like restarting over, right? Like a Genesis 1 now in Genesis 9 after the flood. So in the same way, God, when he judges the earth on that final day when the Lord comes back, it'll be a cleansing judgment, right? But the whole earth won't actually be destroyed, it will be, um, but it'll be uh, um, uh, judged, and then out of that will come creation. In the same way that our resurrected bodies, we don't get a different body, we get a resurrected body that we currently have in its glorious state. So, again, I, you know, 
So I'm gonna, uh, I'll go ahead and end there because I want to give some time for input or um, questions or any, 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 any thoughts that come to mind because this is some really exciting, weighty stuff as we look forward to what the Spirit does in the work of glory. So I'll just kind of open up the floor. Don't be shy. Thank you, Norm. Yeah, I'll just say it'll be similar to what Adam had in the creation. All right. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't know. I felt a little judgment from you. Yeah. <laughs> That is, like, to me, understanding that nuance unlocks so much theologically when we look at the Bible. Yeah. I almost want you to repeat all of that, but we got it all recorded. Yeah. No, because to me, I'm like, it's like, just, just, just get that. If you can get that in your mind, that will help you understand the whole big picture of the Bible and, and how it kind of flows to resurrection and new creation and how it ties all the way back, right? All the way back to the beginning, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a new idea. So, yeah. Thank you, Arnie. That's really helpful. Yeah, what else? What else? Yes. So, uh, so protology, uh, so we'll, we'll just do two Greek words. So protos means like first. So protology is like first things, right? And then eschato- uh, eschatology, the Greek word is eschatos, which just means last. So it's, it's, it's first things and, and last things. And they relate to each other because the last things are really the first things in their full and final form, and the last things um, are, uh, are 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 the you know first things, uh, but but the first things being with the potential to go there. Yeah, I know that that, that one took me a while uh, to, to be able to like you know see how those those are, those are tied together. So one thing that was helpful, I can't remember if I said this earlier. If I did, forgive me. But um, when we think about new creation and resurrection, they're not ideas that happen after the fall, right? Where it's like, hey, man fell, all right, we're going to save him, and then we're going to bring him into this awesome state of resurrection. But that was always the case, even back in Genesis 1. It was always, it was always heading in that direction. It was always with that potential. Yeah, I was just going to pick up on that and what Arnie mentioned there as well, with what it said about Christ in Hebrews 2, that he's bringing many sons to the Lord. Mm. Yes. And that is into this, this glorified state. And this, as Arnie said, I mean, there's, there's mystery there at some level because mm-hmm. we don't know all the fullness of it, but the fullness that we do know is going to be glorious beyond our comprehension. Yes. You know? uh, and I can live with that mystery. Yes. Yeah. Glorious mystery. Yes. Yes. Yeah.
Yes. Man, what an excellent... What, isn't that amazing to see how those things like tie together? I love it. Yeah. And the Corinthians especially needed a word like that with the super apostles who were all about power. And it's like, guys, you guys missed it, right? Power is the age to come, right? What, what we taste in power is through our weaknesses and suffering and right living in this present evil age. Yeah, man, thank you. That's really good. Yes. I honestly don't remember. Yeah. All, all, all I know is what it was associated with. Yeah. 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 It just, um, it is. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Good question. Now, now I'm going to be curious. Yeah. I'm like, I got to go back and listen. Yeah. Read my notes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. Great. Well, let's go ahead. Uh, we'll close. Father, thank you for this time. What a, what, a, what a glorious reality as we look forward to being in that treasured state of um, glorified bodies with you, uh, with the Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit. Give us strength and bless us as we go to enter into corporate worship together. For your namesake, amen. You are dismissed.